Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asp, Salah. Guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have planned to trip up my feet. The arrogant have hidden a trap for me, and with cords they have spread a net. Beside the way they have set snares for me, Selah. I say to the Lord, You are my God. Give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy, O Lord. O Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation. You have covered my head in the day of battle. Grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further their evil plot, or they will be exalted, Selah. Those are the first eight verses of Psalm 140 which along with Psalm 142 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, February the 25th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it very much. We've got um, continuing our look at the story of Ruth in Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 to 18. Uh, The gospel today is Matthew 5, 38 to 48, continuing the Sermon on the Mount. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. So in this passage, remember what had happened yesterday in the lesson from Ruth was is that that um, she had continued uh, to work w- alongside the reapers that who belonged to Boaz, and so he, she had done so through the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and he had um, told them to protect her and to provide for Ruth all along. So, finally, Naomi, her mother, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? This is the second time she's mentioned this idea of seeking rest for her daughter-in-law. Um, it, it, it's an important thing because what she's trying to say is is that you're, you're working hard and you're going through a lot and you've had to go through a lot. And, and my desire for you is for you to have rest. It's to no longer struggle and, and work so hard. <clears throat> is not Boaz our relative with whose young women... You were. See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So there'd be a big party at the end of the harvest, and there would be the, that, that all the people would gather together, and they would, they would winnow the harvest in order that then, then they would, would have their grain for sale or for their own use. But, but everybody would come together, and there would be a big festival and a party at that time. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Seems a little strange, the customs of the Israelites, probably to this Moabite woman. That seems incredibly forward, and and it sounds like something else is being suggested. Uncovering the feet is a metonymy of speech, sometimes used for... um, sexual with sexual innuendo but here it clearly that would be way out of character for Ruth and it would certainly be out of character for the woman who would be the grandmother of David and ultimately uh, in the line of Messiah and so there's there's nothing untoward that's to be happening here we know that Boaz is an older man um, and we know that for reasons that he's going to make clear in a couple of minutes um, the Jewish tradition is is that actually Ruth and Naomi come into Bethlehem on the return from Moab at the time, actually, they were, their funeral for Boaz's wife was that day. That's the sort of Jewish tradition behind all of that. So anyway, so, she, so Naomi tells her what to do here, and it sounds certainly a little strange. Um, there's probably nothing like a kinsman redeemer in the Moabite world that, that would be kind of anathema 
to the way that they thought of things. So Ruth replied, all that you say I will do. I may not understand it, but I'll do it. And, and here's why what she just said is really important. If you go back to Exodus 19.8, God originally proposes a covenant with the people. And these are the people that are at Sinai who have come out of Egypt and who he has delivered from Pharaoh and his army. And they, Moses goes to the people and explains to them what it is God wants from them, that he wants them to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests serving their God. And what was their response? The people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And one of the things that, that they will point to is in Exodus 24. And what, in Exodus 24, the people's response to the Lord is, is that we will do and we will listen. And so that we as, as Christians never, ever hear that. That's not the way we hear what's, what's res, what the response of the people is to God's offer there. Um, it, in Judaism, that's, that's one of the most important things in Judaism, because what it did was it committed them to saying, we trust you and we will do anything you ask, and then we'll listen to learn more as we go along. But they've committed to doing because they've committed to God, because they've seen enough to know that if we commit to him, he's not going to ask us to do things that don't make any sense or that are going to put us into danger. And it's exactly the same thing that that Ruth, the convert, is saying to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who is essentially her rabbi in explaining the ways of Jewish customs, things like gleaning laws and all that. She has clearly explained all of this to her, and now she's taken another step into Jewish law, but it's a step of faith, and it's trust in her mother-in-law, it's trust in Boaz, and it's also trust in the God who put this system into place. And so her response here is exactly what the people said in Exodus 19. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. So she didn't just give lip service, she obeyed. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Remember a couple of days ago, I told you that he, you know, he, he blesses her. When he finds out who she is, he comes and blesses her and says, May the Lord spread his wings over you. And here she's saying, You're the redeemer. You're the one the Lord has uh, set in place to spread your wings over me on behalf of the Lord. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. She, he could have said a million different things, like, are you out of your mind? What are you doing here? No, you've made this last kindness, the kindness towards him, greater than the first, the kindness to her mother-in-law, in that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I'll do for you all that you ask. For all, all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. This is a pretty remarkable thing to say about a Moabite woman, but they had seen Ruth's character. And so she's asking him for this ultimate act of kindness. And, and as I said before, Moabites, in, in the Jewish view, were the people who were sort of anti-kindness people. Not so much as the Sodom people of Sodom, but in a similar way. They had learned something from the time in Sodom that they had had. The Moabites, remember, are the product of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter, who got him drunk, seduced him, and then had a 
child buying because they thought there was nobody else in the world. And so here it kind of looks like a replay of that a little bit. Boaz has been eating and drinking. And now this Moabite woman shows up and and is kind. She doesn't do what you would expect a Moabite woman to do. And so what he says is the people know that you're a worthy woman. You're, you're a person of respect. Because remember, before that, the way Boaz was described was a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. And so you see that same thing here. So he's a worthy man, and now he, this worthy man is declaring her to be a worthy woman. And he says, now it's true that I am indeed a redeemer. Yet there's a redeemer nearer than I, and there's a sort of a pecking order, and, and it would be the one who takes over the land, because they're going to they're take over the land with the idea of giving a child to this woman, and then they would receive a portion of that as well, because this, this, this woman's child is actually the child of her dead husband, is the way that it worked. Um, he said, remain tonight and in the morning. If, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I'll redeem you lie down until the morning. So now she can rest in the promise, the promise that Boaz made. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before anyone, one could recognize another. So it's still dark outside. And he said, let it be known that the woman, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. Because he didn't want when he says, don't let anybody know that you came here. What he's, what he's saying is I want to preserve your reputation. I want other people to see that you are indeed a worthy woman. They would come to their own conclusions if they found out that you had been here. So she held out the garment, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. It's empty interesting because one of the the things that Naomi had said when she came back about being bitter was is that she had gone away full and now she comes back empty and so this is sort of a reversal of that whole thing Ruth comes back full with the barley so that she doesn't come back empty-handed to her mother-in-law she replied wait my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest but will settle the matter today she, she had confidence in Boaz that he would get this thing taken care of, that he wouldn't rest until he had taken care of, of this and made good on his promise. In the gospel, Jesus is continuing to talk about, you have heard it said, which is, means that, it, that in the Old Testament it says this. So he says, you've heard it said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and I've talked about that a little bit, and, and the, he makes the application to the person that if your eye offends you, then tear it out. If your hand offends you, then take it off. If your foot offends you, cut it off. Um, here he says, you've heard it said it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is, it's lex talionis is the, is the, the sort of Latin term for it. But, but what, it, what it does is it sets limits on um, recourse. So you can't, if you were cheated out of a certain amount of money, then you couldn't go beyond that in getting retribution for it and the same with physical injury and so you could you could not you know if somebody cut out one of your eyes you didn't mean you had the opportunity to go out and cut out two of theirs no it had to be in equal measure <clears throat> he says but i say to you do not resist the one who is evil evil that's that's an important word in this he's speaking specifically about an evil person and that's the right word for it. It's panera, um, which is an evil one, evil man, because it's a, a, a masculine 
way of saying it. So do not resist the one who is evil. And it's the same word evil that, that is in the Lord's Prayer um, where we talk about evil. So it's the same word and it would be evil one is the right way to translate it. Um, and so here it says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, what we're talking about there is an evil person slapping you on the right cheek. And the reason I'm saying that is because I, I had somebody come to me one time and, and tell me that what we needed to do with respect to a, somebody in the, um, in the congregation who had sinned grievously against somebody was is that, that we needed to, to teach people how to turn the other cheek. And I said that, no, this, reply, this is specifically about an evil person who does this. The whole context is about an evil person. It's not about a brother sinning against a brother. That's Matthew 18, not Matthew 5. Um, and so here he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go a mile, then go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And so Jesus has given us a new way of looking at ethics in the way that we respond to people outside the kingdom. And, and it's exactly what he's trying to, to, to get across here is, is that, that, that there's a witness in, in the way that we respond to people outside. We respond in, in the way that they would never expect, in the way they would never respond themselves. And it, there's a different ethic in the kingdom. He says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil, his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. He makes no differentiation in this world between those two. And part of that would be because we know that one can become the other. <laughs> you know, a friend can become an enemy and an enemy can become a friend. And, and the goal, as Paul's going to tell us in Romans, is to win that one over. Because they will feel guilt over the way that you respond to them. And they'll see there's a countercultural way of living. But, but that's because we live in a different kingdom, that our citizenship is somewhere else. And so we're responding and showing that we're the son of a different kind of father, the daughter of a different kind of father. We, we're not the same as other people, there should be a distinction. And then Jesus' whole life is a lived outness of these two things more than almost any other of the things that he talks about. Because he, he doesn't seek retribution. He leaves all of that to God in the long term. It doesn't mean there won't be judgment. But in this world, God doesn't differentiate between the just and the unjust as far as certain kinds of things are concerned. And, and that should give us um, reason to pause. But what he's really saying in all this, if you, if you hear it, don't, he's saying don't love your friends or neighbors and hate your enemies. He, no, he's saying love everybody. Don't have enemies is a better way of, of making this short version of it. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and so Jesus is defining that in a different way. He, he, what he's saying essentially in all of this is the law is an accommodation to sin. If sin hadn't come into the world, then there wouldn't have been any need for the law because you wouldn't have you wouldn't have known good and evil in that way. You would have just chosen the good. If you had just continued to choose the good and continued to do what Ruth did, which is to say, all that you've spoken, we will I will do, and then do it 
then life would go very different from you. But we need to know what sin is now because we chose an experiential path towards the knowledge of good and evil, whereby we, we participated in sin and partook in sin. And what we found was is that, that, huh, that wasn't all that bad. And so that's the reason the law exists. So Jesus is raising the bar and saying perfection is something more than that. The law is the simplest form of, of God's will. It's the simplest form. It, the most basic, but Jesus says there's a higher form of that as well, and that's what he's discussing here in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Second Corinthians passage, Paul says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. The ministry is the proclamation of the gospel. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He's saying this because he's defending his apostleship in some ways, and he's taken a veiled shot at the people who have come in and have now deceived them and, and won their hearts away by, by the eloquence of their rhetoric, let's say. He says, <clears throat> Um, even if our gospel is veiled, remember we were talking yesterday about Moses' face being veiled and people couldn't understand it because the Holy Spirit wouldn't remove the veil. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. It's an interesting way of saying that, right? In their case, the God of this world. So who is the God of this world? That's the important thing for us to get out of this. Who is the God of this world? has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. Paul talks rather less directly about Satan. Um, Paul does, however, speak of um, these other principalities and powers and rulers in the heavenly places and things like that. He speaks of that a lot. Paul, Paul has a, a, a quite well-developed sense of the unseen realm. And it's a powerful thing. But he says the God of the world has blinded their minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And we're created in the image of God, but Jesus is the image of God. There's a, there's a vast difference. When Jesus talks about being perfect, he's the only one who can reach that standard and even understand that standard because he, he, he was born of a woman, yes, but his father is God. And so there's, there's something different about him, although he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. But he is the image of God. If you would see God, then you look at Jesus, is what Paul's saying. For what, do we proclaim, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So he's proclaiming the same thing that Naomi pro- proclaimed to Ruth, and that is he, Jesus, is our Redeemer. And so we're pointing to him and saying he's the one who is the Redeemer. Um, God said, let light shine out of the darkness as shown in your hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you can't have one without the other. If you want to have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, it's in the face of Jesus. And that shines in our hearts. And that goes back to that whole Moses shining face thing. So now now the, the veil is removed from our hearts in the new covenant, that's exactly what happens. There's a new covenant, and he writes the laws on our hearts. And, and we see that, that the light now shines on our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. In other words, we're fallible and we're broken and all that. We, we're not permanent. To show that the surpassing glory of God belongs to God and not to us. So m- my form, my frame, my body is a temporal thing, and it will, I will die. And that's what he means by jars of clay. But, but 
so it, what it shows, though, is, is that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Don't turn to me as your Savior and your Redeemer. No, that's God's work, and that's the resurrected Christ is the one who is your Redeemer. I'm just the messenger. We're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So it, we see the weakness in our bodies because we're, we're persecuted and, and uh, afflicted and all that, but the glory of the Lord shines through that brokenness. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So what you see when you see somebody who's bringing the gospel is a man, a woman, whoever it is that's bringing the gospel to you. And, And what they're bringing is not themselves, but they're bringing him. They're bringing the ultimate redeemer the one who can save you unto the end. So put not your trust in men, but put it in God alone. That's the way and the key to the way we live this life.